0: This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone, where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. All right, we're here today with Kelly Manley, a very widely published and successful freelance journalist. I've got a quick story. About two months ago, my inboxes were filling up with people forwarding me an article and I mean literally it was I would say 80 to 100 different people that were forwarding me this article saying oh man you got to check this out this is right up your alley you got to meet this person you got to get this person on all this stuff and I thought yeah yeah yeah, it's, it's good I'll, I'll check it out and all that <laughs> and then I read the article it was fantastic but then I get a message from a friend of mine that says hey have you read this article I said yes I have he said this is a good friend of mine let me introduce you And I said, outstanding. So fast forward today, and we have Kelly Manley in the house making magic. So Kelly, welcome to Champagne Problems.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me, you guys. You're
0: very welcome. We're very happy to have you on. We're very happy to dig into this topic. So let's start off. Let's get to know you a little bit better. If you don't mind giving our listeners a bit of your backstory, a little bit of your bio, if you will.
1: Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm a freelance writer and filmmaker. And my work has been published in the New York Times and Vogue and Mary Claire and others. And I started off writing about skiing and mountain sports. Then I would say over the last like five to seven years, my work has focused more on um, wellness and topics around wellness, um, psychedelic medicine, my journey to get off benzodiazepines, um, suicides in ski towns, and oh, wow. yeah, because there's there's a huge epidemic of suicide in, in ski towns, which is really interesting because these are sort of locales that seem perfect. Yeah, it's called the paradise paradox, and so anyway, I wrote that for oh. National Geographic Adventure, and it it was hugely popular. I Besides some of my alcohol stories, I'd never had a story go so viral. And anyway, and my kind of back backstory is um, I grew up in Marin County and New York outside of uh, New York City and then Denver. And I grew up in a very sort of boozy world. You know, my parents drank and just, you know, a world where alcohol was very sort of romanticized and glamorized. And, you know, I started drinking very early on and partying, you know, at 13 and um, I was sort of like the fun party girl, and I love, you know, it was just so fun. And I was, you know, had a <laughs> fake ID when I was 14, and I was arrested at 14 and telluride on, on oh, New Year's. Nice. I was actually 13 for drinking, and, you know, it was really fun then. And, you know, looking back, I recognized that, yeah, part of it was fun, and part of it was because I was a very kind of precocious teenager, but I was also drinking on some level to escape the reality of my family life and my family life was that you know i had a mother that was really depressed and um had suicide attempts and i just you know as a teen i just didn't have the tools to deal with it or understand it and so that sort of continued on through college and in college i started getting more anxiety after drinking you know um Mm -hmm. And it was impacting my mental health, but I couldn't kind of put it together yet. And then when I was 22, my mom ultimately died by suicide. And, you know, she had a complicated relationship with alcohol. She wasn't the kind of drinker that woke up in the morning and, you know, had a little flask of whiskey in her purse or anything like that. But she was the kind of person that when she started drinking, she couldn't stop. And like a glass became a bottle Um, you know, she would get high, 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 and then kind of like crash, be more depressed and mean and um, weepy. And anyway, so when I was 22, it sort of all culminated in her dying. God, Kelly. Yeah, I'm not trying to get too heavy here. I'm just trying to, you know, be like, honest with like the facts.
0: Please, we welcome anything you're willing to share. You know, again, I read the article you wrote on this, and it was about the most powerful thing I've ever read. Oh, you're so, thank you. I'd like for our listeners to to maybe take a look at that article. Thank you.
1: Yeah, and so, you know, my 20s were, you know, I was still in this kind of like party girl mentality. I moved to New York City, and I worked in publishing, and all there is to do, not all there is, but all my world was about in New York City was like eating and drinking and going to cool clubs and cool parties and staying out late and, um, you know, but I was, it was increasingly making me miserable. And I, I saw therapists and psychiatrists at the time and nobody that I remember ever really said to me like, Hey, um, Maybe you should like think about your lifestyle and like maybe, you know, quit drinking and sleep better and just take better care of yourself. Instead, I was prescribed, you know, antidepressants and benzodiazepines and, you know, and maybe I'm misremembering it and, you know, my therapists and shrinks were telling me to stop drinking, but that's not what I remember, you know. And um, I think that's very common in American culture is that we, uh, you know, men, women, but, you know, a lot of women are like, depressed and anxious and can't figure out why and you know we're so easily prescribed you know antidepressants and benzos and nobody is ever like addressing the root issue you know instead it's like this quick fix culture and so I kept kind of going along in my 20s just like I was really miserable Um, even though I thought I was having fun you know and then finally when I was 29 I reached a point where, um, you know, I was getting drunk and fighting with my boyfriends and I wanted love too much to keep drinking. And so I decided like, all right, I'm going to quit drinking for a year. And in that year, I mean, for me, it was magic. Like my whole like world came alive as soon as I quit drinking. And, you know, within a year I was writing for national publications and I was like, I went on my first press trip to Africa for free. And I was on TV and I was going to the Olympics and like (laughs) it, it for me, it was a magic that I didn't really want to mess with. And so everything sort of was going along great. And, um, I met my husband in 2011 and then we got married in 2015. And, you know, I did all these big things without booze. Like I dated, I got married, I went to my wedding, I traveled all over the world. And then, um, in 2016, a year after I was married, my my dad died. We moved to a new city. My husband got a new job. He was traveling. I had a baby. And yeah, and, and like I said, we moved back to Denver. And I was just, my foundation was really shaky. And I was really um, just shaky. And I was kind of really hungry for connection and new friends. And, you know, I sort of looked around at Kind of popular culture, and and this isn't it, this isn't such like an explicit thing where you see an ad or you see an Instagram post and you're like, oh, you know, Molly Sims is drinking um, champagne and looks great, so I'm gonna do it. It's
0: inner mo- in closet, yeah,
1: yeah. It's more it's more subtle. It's like it's these subtle messages that sort of seep into your consciousness and frame how you view at uh, alcohol and that's what and that's what marketing is you know it's intentional it's yeah it's intentional and un- there's intentional and unintentional and yeah you look everywhere in my opinion you know and you have messages like you know you have hoda and kathy lee drinking wine in the morning on the today show mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you have gwyneth paltrow you know after the insurrection on january 6 or whatever saying like up oh, you know F, dry January, you know, there's been this big thing that's very upsetting. Up, oh, let's drink, you know, and uh, um, yeah. you have. I see that one. Yeah, on, with Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, and I think she's like a lovely, great. I think a lot of her messaging is great, but like, it's just another example of how pervasive this message that alcohol is an innocuous cure to our troubles whether it's parenting or stress or work or you know politics like anyway so i just sort of i feel like i absorb these messages and i just decided okay like i'm gonna start drinking again this will kind of make things easier and i thought you know maybe this will make me the fun kelly like like i was back in high school and
0: <laughs> the get arrested kelly
1: yeah they get arrested kelly <laughs> Kelly, do you remember
2: that moment as kind of a formal decision or was it like one night sitting there you just took a drink?
1: Hmm. It was sort of, um, you know, I was out to dinner with some new mom friends and I'd been sort of thinking about it and like I was sort of, I didn't want to have to explain why I didn't drink or, Mm -hmm. you know, make people uncomfortable that I wasn't drinking. Um, And so I just did it. And Mm -hmm. for me, I'm totally fine going to like a big party and wherever and not drinking like it's for me what I find most uncomfortable is when you go to a small intimate dinner with people you don't really know well like people you're trying to make friends with and they notice what you're drinking and then it's mm-hmm. like you got to say something you know and so I drank and that was um like six months after my first daughter was born and I didn't drink a lot you know <laughs> um But I sort of, I had a couple times where I drank at home while I was cooking and, you know, nothing bad happened. I didn't have any like explosive fights with my husband. I didn't get like rip roaring drunk. You know, I maybe on one of my birthdays I had, you know, got tipsy, but it was very like, there was no huge issue that my husband wasn't like, whoa, you got to rein it in girl. But I just, it just, for me, alcohol just exacerbates anxiety for me. It exacerbates depression for me. It just makes me like not a great version of myself. I get irritable, tired, just I feel like it messes with sort of my energy. And so about two years ago, I gave it up again. And there was no like big moment. I can remember the last time I drank socially. I just kind of was like, this is not um, worth it for me. And I didn't get the upside. I didn't get like the buzz anymore, which was probably actually a good thing because I think if I'd like gotten the fun buzz, I probably would have been like, Ooh, you know, this is worth it. But I didn't, I just always felt like I was underwater, you know, just felt really like soggy. I think it's so interesting how, you know, the stats are there, the, the health stats are there. Alcohol is a, you know, category one carcinogen, you know, the American cancer society recommends that there's no level of safe drinking but like it's so ingrained in our culture that like we can't even like have an honest conversation about it without people like attacking you like I got really attacked after my Mary Claire story it's so normalized that we can't even people can't even see alcohol for what it really is it's
0: so protected I mean people just they just hold on to it and hang on to it because it is felt like it is a part of us and that is what I mean, speaking to what you're saying, that's what they've—that's how it's been portrayed. It's that's sacred. how it's been marketed. It is—it has is created a culture. It is a, an alcohol culture that is in our society. That it's almost like we're out of control of. You know, we have to do all the back end work.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and it's—you know—I think about this a lot. And maybe you know, I'm just one person, and I'm not a scientist or an academic. But this is just my observation. You know, I've lived abroad a bunch, like in Europe. And it's different. Even though France and Italy, there's like, you know, alcohol is a part of culture there. It is just absolutely not cool to get mm-hmm. drunk, you know, and to mm-hmm. me in France and Italy, it's like wine is like a little kind of add on, you know, it's not like there's not the same drinking to cope. And it's it just feels different. And I also want to say, like, I don't think all alcohol is bad. Like, I don't. It works for some people. You know, some people can drink appropriately and not in a way where it's a crutch or unhealthy.
2: Kelly, when you were having the experience of kind of feeling like you didn't really reap the benefits of alcohol, it kind of increased anxiety, irritability, all those things. Did you feel that that was something that was shared between you and other people in your personal life and it just wasn't
1: talked about? Or did you feel alone in that? A hundred percent. Like, I feel like we're all... Not we're all because I don't want to generalize, but I feel like there are not a lot of honest conversations about alcohol and the toll it really takes on people's lives. And some people are just willing to live with, you know, the anxiety and the depression that comes with it. And I feel like as soon as I was sort of open about it, people would be like, oh, yeah, I get really anxious, Mm -hmm. too. And Mm -hmm. I didn't feel so alone, but I was kind of like, and you guys want to live like this? Like, maybe I'm sure it wasn't as bad as how I was because I think I'm a little bit maybe more hardwired for being anxious. But I just I think a lot of people just like accept that that is like the price Mm -hmm. you have to pay and Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and also don't understand that there is another way to live and be and connect with people.
2: I think it's really hard if you haven't had that experience of removing alcohol. And we say all the time, sometimes it's not that it's super problematic or that there's anything really bad happening. It's just that so much more good could happen if you removed it. And you don't know that until you remove it. You Sometimes you don't even piece together where some of those mental health symptoms were coming from that fatigue was coming from. And, and then you remove one thing from your diet essentially, rather than adding in a pill or some other coping mechanism to, you know, deal. And then you realize that was the thing. But if you never get to the point where you're acknowledging that that's happening and you're willing to remove it, you just never get to learn that piece of like, wow, I really feel better without it. And I didn't ever feel that great with it.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I think I think a lot of women quit drinking when they're pregnant and they're like, oh, I felt Mm -hmm. really amazing when I Mm -hmm. um, was pregnant and forget. Maybe it's (laughs) because. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then they have their baby and they're like, oh, I'm ready for some champagne. Yeah.
3: Speaking of that, like let's kind of jump into moms and alcohol culture and mommy juice. You know, you've done a lot of work around that how how did you i mean did you did you kind of segue into that through your own experience or was this something that you were looking at professionally before you kind of made your decision to stop drinking and and then you know experiment a little bit more
1: it was know? after it was just started noticing it more after i had children like all the things it's you know i feel like you're just in a different reality before you have children and you don't you know and And so I just started noticing it more after I had children and both in my personal life, but also culturally. And then, you know, I wrote a story for Elle about a year ago um, about, it started as a wine mommy wine culture story and it, and it is some of that, but it was also became about pandemic drinking. And then I sort of started really kind of looking at uh, some of the messaging, you know, and, you know, marketing and advertising And then my eyes were really opened up to it. Yeah, so I just feel like my eyes have been opened and now I can't, it's hard to miss it.
0: Yeah. let's talk about the cultural aspect of of the mom stuff, you know, the targeting, the the intention behind it. With the work that you've done, when did this start?
1: I think this is really interesting. So women started being kind of targeted. Well, let, let me start this way. I think women for a long while have use various substances to deal with the stresses of life, in particular motherhood. And, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, we had Milltown, which is a tranquilizer, and Valium. And, you know, those were mother's little helpers. Fast forward to these days, and we have, you know, cannabis and wine. I think that women, they were more intentionally targeted by advertisers and, and marketing efforts in the starting in the 90s with sort of the introduction of Zima and wine coolers and um sam's favorites. yeah yeah <laughs> bacardi breezers you know there was this sort of pinking mm-hmm. of of alcohol advertising cute drinks yeah and then i think in like 2010 like you know the last sort of 10-ish years you see more of this um sort of wine mom culture of like mama needs wine and facebook groups around moms who drink and um you know merchandise like you know the mama needs wine shirts and um you know all that kind of stuff like started kind of happening 10 or 12 years ago and I feel like right now it's just it's like reached a fever pitch I think what's also interesting is that it's sort of coin this whole thing sort of coincides with um I think the nature of motherhood has changed over the last 20 or 30 years. And sort of in my parents' day, um, I'm 42, you know, parents just sort of, you know, you, they kept you safe, they fed you, you know, they nurtured you some. But now I feel like motherhood, is it's it's all about sort of optimizing your kid and, you know, creating enriching time and experiences all the time and extracurriculars and sort of stressful. It's, it's super, super stressful. And it's, it's just different. Like I didn't do any extracurricular activities barely when I was a kid. And now, you know, my kid's four and a half and you know, she's doing something every day. And that's not necessarily because I feel it's somewhat like the pressure to do it. It's also because she's like a little border collie and I want to keep her busy. Uh, I get it. I get it. (laughs) It's like motherhood has shifted. And at the same time, I think women have made tremendous strides in the workforce Mm -hmm. and like, having a big career is an option for women now and so and and maybe also there's pressure to have a big career a in soci- a certain social like milieu so all these things have been added to women's plates and nothing's been taken away and so mm-hmm. women are more stressed i think it's also interesting that women are more depressed than they've ever been they're more anxious than they've ever been they're lonelier than they've ever been and they're drinking and dying from alcohol more than ever. And so I don't think it's a coincidence. You know, even though there's no studies linking all of those things, um, something is going on in the fabric of American life that is making women really unhappy. Yeah, And I hate saying that. We also, like, we've got first world problems. Like, we are lucky in a lot of ways that we have choice in our careers and we have food on the table, a lot of us. And, you know, we have a lot of first world luxuries but we also have a like particular kind of first world stress that doesn't exist in a lot of other places
3: from your from your work like coming at it from the marketing and advertising side have you done a lot of investigation around that stuff and how moms are targeted and how that anxiety and loneliness and depression is kind of preyed upon
1: hmm that's i don't know but like what we do know is that So advertisers and marketers, like their job is to spot emerging trends Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. capitalize on them. And so Mm -hmm. I think, you know, they see that like women are drinking to cope with motherhood and they like seize on that and sort of capitalize on it. And then I think we can also look at, you know, big tobacco advertising, you know, that preyed on women's vulnerabilities, like the desire to stay thin and beautiful and, you know, despite the health consequences. And then I think even more recently, we can look at Facebook where, you know, it's come out in the last, you know, months that they know that um, social media is very toxic for young girls, yet they're targeting them. So, you know, I think advertising and marketing can be a very unscrupulous industry.
2: I like that you pointed out, though, that they're responding to an already existing demand or an upswing and a trend. They're not creating it. And, you know, some of that culture happens between us because essentially we've always had something to cope with. It's just we need a lot more now to cope with what's going on nowadays. And some of the things that I've seen are they half address some of the complaints. So if you wake up with a a lot of hangovers or if this makes you tired or gives you headaches, like try our sugar-free wine, (laughs) right? Like try this one that we've made even better so that you don't experience those things. And, And that's their job is to sell their product and make it better than the next guys. But I think, you know, our culture and the culture amongst women also has we haven't really figured out better ways to cope or we haven't latched on to better ways to cope and created a culture around that. And so even if we don't buy into it, there's such an autopilot kind of response and phrase to be like, you just need a glass of wine. Like, you deserve a night off and and all these things. And and what if we were like, you just need to go for a walk?
1: (laughs) You just need to, like, go to bed. early." alcohol
3: has been somehow... Yeah, it, it somehow infiltrated self care. Like you got to take good care of yourself. Have an Yay. extra glass of wine tonight.
0: <laughs> All right. I uh, I'm always interested in the and, and Sam, you just touched. We've we've already touched on it a couple of times, but just kind of almost the chicken or the egg thing. It's hard to figure out because I understand that there is there is heightened stress, and clearly there is obviously there's kind of a trend that's happening in the in, in with females over the past couple of decades. But then you can also insert, you know, major world disasters or whatever else can create fear and stress and and panic in just everybody. So back to kind of the advertisers, you know, they see that it's almost like weapons making money off wars, you know, weapons companies. It's like it's like something crazy happens, something bad happens. So advertisers see that everybody's in a, you know, an insecure kind of place. And so let's market alcohol. Let's market it more now. And is that, I mean, is that really, that's what's happening to your knowledge? I mean, that's how they do it?
1: I mean, I don't know. I don't have numbers on, you know, were there more marketing dollars spent on booze during COVID? I don't know. What I do think happens is I think that marketing and advertising, it reflects, you know, what's going on. It reflects a reality and then it reinforces yeah. it. Then it creates you know? a culture around and it. And it it's sort it of it's almost like And it's, it's just like, like Yeah, if you cycle. like have
3: anxiety and you don't know it, you think it's normal. But then when somebody says, Oh, you have anxiety and here's this thing that can help you feel better, it's like, Oh, I have anxiety and it like <laughs> makes it makes it worse. And then yeah. now you have Yeah, and then and you've then got you an, have your yeah. answer.
1: I just wanted to share a little anecdote from COVID. So the day in Denver that they announced in like March, 2020 or whenever it was that they were going to close the liquor stores. I went for a run in my neighborhood, like within five minutes of, I might've even heard it on my iPod while I was running. And I ran up to our past our local liquor store and there was a line three blocks long, like within five minutes, you know, Uh, I just thought that was crazy. And.
2: Well, I think that reflects like, do they, I mean, whether they increased marketing or not during that time, they really didn't Mm -hmm. need to the minute in my community, that a liquor store was deemed an essential business that would remain open like a bank didn't matter. I mean, this doesn't have anything to do with marketing that has to do with demand and, you know, perceived <laughs> outrage if they closed that or kind of where we could still make money in tax dollars. And I think that's, it's just an important piece to look at of like, it's already there. We already want it, consume it and have a huge demand for it. And any other spin that branding or marketing puts on it is just to get the sale for their company over another guy's company. Thank
3: God you stockpiled all those Zemas.
2: <laughs> Thank
1: God. Bacardi Breezers, you know. And I think one thing, like I've talked to a couple in my work, I've talked to several heptologists at various ERs around the country And they're very concerned. And, um, you know, they think that, so we'll also have to talk about the stats, but that there's going to be a long tailwind to this drinking. It's like, you know, everybody thinks, oh, it's all right. You know, I drank more during the pandemic, but alcohol is an addictive substance and it's really sneaky. And, you know, all of a sudden you're drinking a bottle of wine a night. There's real health consequences that can come from that. And um, as I mentioned in one of my stories, the the rate of alcoholic liver disease, which is a disease that usually happens in middle-aged men, that anecdotally there's evidence from ERs around the country that the rate of ALD in women under forty has uh, gone up thirty to fifty percent. That is wow. mm-hmm. unheard of, you know. It's huge. And it's it's devastating
2: have a lot of clients right now who are starting this process kind of looking at removing alcohol stepping away from it or changing their patterns and most of the narrative is you know my drinking really picked up during the pandemic and I thought once the pandemic was over and we went back to work like so would my drinking would be too but now I'm realizing like neither of those things are going to be over right i'm not going back to work like we're staying remote the pandemic's not ending and this is kind of like new eight like this is what we're living with and suddenly i look in the mirror and i'm also living with drinking way too much alcohol with no real tools or connection yeah. to offset that and then,
3: and then you have a you know primary care doc that has never seen your alcohol consumption is now prescribing you you know Benzos and yeah. Adderall to keep you going at work and keep your anxiety at bay. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the perfect storm. Mm-hmm.
1: That was me. I mean, I, yeah, that was exactly yeah. me in my 20s. Like, Adderall to get up, you know, antidepressants to kind of, like, stabilize me. It didn't work. And then, you know, benzos mm-hmm. at night to sort of be able to sleep. And and then, you know, in 2014, I uh, when I wasn't drinking – I was getting my, I'd moved to Denver and I was getting my benzo prescription refilled by my gynecologist. And, um, you know, I was starting to get them refilled too early and I wasn't like abusing them. I didn't think like I would take a couple more than normal sometimes. And, but I was having to refill my prescriptions early and she like pulled me aside and was like, I'm concerned that you have a benzo, um, dependency. And I was shocked. I was sort of like, what? Mm-hmm. I gave up yeah. booze. Like, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of taking these as needed. And it wasn't like I wasn't stealing them from people or I was like basically taking them as needed and taking more on occasion. And, and then I started noticing like when I didn't have them, I would have these yeah. massive like anxiety mm-hmm. attacks. Mm-hmm. And it, my body was in withdrawal, you know. I remember I... I went down to Telluride, and I climbed and skied this mountain, you know, like, backcountry. You know, we got up at 2 or in the morning, and then we, you know, climbed a 14,000-foot mountain and then skied down it, and I couldn't sleep that night because I didn't have my clonopin, And I was just beside myself. So it was sort of around that time or shortly thereafter that this doctor told me that I needed to um, – like look at it and I started working with an integrative psychiatrist and I, I got off yeah. it eventually, but it was really hard. You know, I had, it took me maybe a mm-hmm. year. I had to like take my dose down incrementally, like bit by bit. And I just I was astounded that this was not more widely known, you know. I ended up writing a story for Vogue about it. I was just like, couldn't believe it. This was a thing, you know, that doctors will prescribe. You
3: caught a lot of hell from that one, too.
1: I actually didn't. <laughs> I didn't. Like, really? No, I've, I've been really lucky. Besides this Mary Claire story, I've, I've like gotten most a lot of positive feedback over the years. And then this Mary Claire story, I mean, <laughs> eviscerated. Like, uh, How dare you? Yeah, and I'm sort of I mean, a, you, thinking don't like.
3: mess with the alcoholic Karen's.
1: Yeah, I was like, I'm writing about like my experience and my mom dying and my dad dying and, you know, cultural messages. And I was really careful not to like be judgy and not talk about other people's drinking and just it hit a nerve. So
0: mm-hmm. you think that was I mean, was that moms who drink reading your article saying, don't you dare take this from me?
1: I think it was that. I think a lot of it probably hit really close to home. Right. I also think some feedback that I got, and this just it drives me nuts, is people will say, oh, this is so sexist. Like, we don't criticize men in the same... They're men's drinking in the same way. And I'm kind of like... Mm. You know, but you know who's experiencing the ill effects of alcohol the most? It's women. You know, yeah. our bodies. That's mm-hmm.
3: some serious deflection right there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> like, our bodies yeah. simply cannot metabolize booze the same way as men. And right. we're the ones where, I mean, it's an issue with guys too, but, like, we're the ones that are showing, like, the fastest rates of increase and that are, like, dying in an unprecedented way, you know. Our, and our drinking has caught up to men and— so it's not a a sexist thing. I also happen to be a woman. And so I kind of, that's what I see, you know, and experience. And maybe you, you men have a different experience and think that the messaging is very similar to you guys, but I think the messaging is a bit different for women than it is for guys.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, the proof is in the, Pudding, for lack of whatever, better words, but I mean, do you know some statistics? Like, what are, what are some of the numbers that are showing just these increases?
1: So, over the last 20 or so years, um, the rate of alcohol-related deaths among women has increased 85%. I and mean, that's a lot. You know? really? You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, yep. You know, the, the rates of consumption, binge drinking, alcohol-related harms, and deaths have increased the most in women in their 30s and 40s. It's, you know, meanwhile, like, my understanding is that teen drinking has gone down a bit. And so all of this, to me, points to something is going on with American womanhood, you know? Mm -hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, And and early motherhood plus career age. I mean, there's that 20-year period of, I'm trying, like you said— Nothing's been removed from that plate. Everything's been added. So now we have full-time careers, we have babies, we do all the th- those things. And we have to parent at a whole different level. We have to keep up with the Joneses now in a parenting lane, not just in a household lane. And That's right. where's all of that supposed to go? Yeah, I agree.
0: When I finished grad school for, for mental health uh, counseling, I went straight into being a stay-at-home dad. And it was because my wife is a physician and she was in residency and we just and we had our child and uh, I couldn't we couldn't figure out how to both work and take care of an infant so I by default became the stay-at-home dad and essentially have been since granted I still I mean I work now but there was a period where I didn't work and you know if my wife were sitting here and we were talking about this she would gladly welcome up the example of uh, being a full-time physician who you know literally works her ass off i mean daily weekly yearly just works very 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 hard but then comes home to a stay-at-home dad father that didn't get shit done (laughs) and she's got to still do all this other stuff and like all the like the the mother. you weren't even drinking the mother and i wasn't even drinking the motherly things you know i mean but but just to your point it's just it's like there is a role, it, it, there's a role for a mother, and it's increasing, there's more pressure, there's just, I welcomed being a stay-at-home dad, but I, I couldn't or didn't do all the things that, you know, she could, she could, and so even though the, she had this full-time job, she came home and still had to do a bunch of other stuff, and it was a lot of resentment, and she will tell you that, and we've worked on it, but. Yeah, I
1: think it's a lot of the work you're referring to is like what's called the mental load. And it's just mm-hmm. all the sort of unspoken things that women or moms just attend to, like that a lot of times men just like don't understand, like don't it's like not even yes. in their consciousness. And there's also things that like men deal with pressures and stresses that like it's hard for women to understand. But you know, I was talking to a girlfriend about it last night. You know, it's like remembering that in January you got to sign up for camp for the summer, and you got to get those health forms in, and you got to, you know, we're gonna go out, you know, in two weeks. I got to get the babysitter, and uh, I've got to pick up, you know, this daughter at school, and then, you know, take her to this extracurricular. It's all these, you know, little mental load things you just got to keep track Mm of.
0: Yeah.
2: We don't have this really deep like physical breakdown because of all the things we're physically having to do. It's anxiety and depression because it's all held up here, that constant scanning for what did I miss or what's coming up that I need Mm -hmm. to plan for that's not always out loud, but it is constant. And even if the physical output of both partners is the same, the mental load is not shared.
1: I think also, I mean, I get why people drink and I get why moms drink. Like there was a lot of times during the pandemic where I just felt like, Oh my God, I just want to escape. I just want to escape. And what's the easiest way to escape. It's by having a glass or two of wine, you know? And there's a lot of women that can't, you know, do all this self care stuff like go exercise or go take a bath or it just, it's just not a reality. And so alcohol is easy. It's accessible. So it makes and it it works, yeah, and it works in the short term.
0: For short term, very well. Yeah, yeah. temporarily it works. One thing works like a charm.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one thing I was interested and I didn't know before writing one of my articles is that you know, the science seems to be indicating that when you drink to cope, or drink to deal Mm -hmm. with stress, alcohol becomes more addictive. Is for sure one thing, and also. I, you know, I knew in my own experience that, you know, alcohol can offer short term relief, but that it exacerbates, you know, anxiety and depression in the long run. And, you know, physiologically damages your body's ability to be happy.
2: Which just doesn't yeah. fit the narrative that, you know, if I'm allowed two cups of coffee throughout the day and two glasses of wine at night, I'm a better mom. It That's a very kind of short term view on I got relief from those two glasses of wine without any kind of evaluation of, yeah, and how did you feel the next morning when you were more fatigued, more irritable, had less energy, had less patience, all of those things, and weren't able to actually kind of keep up in the same way that you would be able to without having had a depressant in your system overnight.
1: Yeah, and I think because we're not having these honest conversations around alcohol, women feel like ashamed that they ex- you know it's like a shame that yeah. they experience these things and it's you know you feel alone in this experience yeah. when like the reality is that is the reality of alcohol Yeah.
3: now, you, now you're a bad mom and now drink and there's
1: something wrong with you that you of, yeah yeah that you can't handle alcohol and
2: outside of some of the backlash you got for the article was there also a lot of oh my gosh, this totally speaks to me kind of response.
1: Yeah. There, there was a ton, you know, I got like a ton of new Instagram followers overnight. After I write one of these stories, I always get a message from somebody I know that I didn't expect, you know, that, that it touched. Um, I I got the positive feedback outweighed the negative, but I was, I was surprised at the negative. I just, for me, I feel like I, I see alcohol so clearly now for what it is. It's, it's hard for me to unsee that you know
0: yeah mm-hmm. yeah well that's that's an interesting point because you know we work in this field in the mental health field in the addiction field and that's such a a driving factor of of this podcast really is it's it's as if we know something that others are are either blind to or ignorant to or just not it's information that's not accessible we just feel this obligation to to present this information to help people make, you know, rational decisions.
1: Yeah, I agree. One thing I wanted to mention about what's going on with women is I think we have to also talk about the lack of community. I think people in general, but women in particular feel really lonely and isolated. And, you know, there's evidence that supports that, you know, we're not as engaged in civic um, organizations like church and, you know, Girl Scouts and, you know, going down to the library, we're not engaging as much with our community because we're, you know, we can order all our groceries through yeah, Amazon Prime, digital. you know, so we're not having the sort of daily, as many of the daily interactions that sort of knit us into a community. I think that has a lot to do with this sort of general pervasive unhappiness that a lot of people experience. And, and perhaps that is behind also like the increase in drinking you know people want to connect they want to yeah belong
3: and many of the things that are community based for women now have alcohol attached to them
1: mm-hmm. yeah. Somebody was just telling me that their junior league meetings used to be all like there used to be so much booze and wine and it was just like another mm-hmm. excuse for free drinks and that. More recently, they've sort of tried to dial that back. And I've heard the same thing about book clubs. Bible studies, too. Bible, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Like a lot of the women's Bible studies around kind of my age is it's like I have a lot of friends that are like, I stopped going because it was just wine night and like husband bashing and I'm just not – that has nothing to do with Bible study, you know. It's like – but it was just kind of this decompressing zone and then that that was the expected kind of behavior or what you were doing to decompress. And I think even if it's not the cause of, you know, even if the lack of connection is not the cause of the increase of in drinking, it certainly is a really good answer to it. You know, it really is something that we know will mitigate it. We know will help is... But no one wants to hear when they've had a long day and they're really struggling with motherhood. Like, hey, I know this great support group that you can go to twice a week and here's something I'm adding to your plate. You know, it's not not as easy and does not roll off the tongue the same way this kind of woman-to-woman culture of, you just need a glass of wine, you just need a girl's night, you just need, you know, it's not as easy to have those honest conversations.
3: Especially when your entire social network is doing the same thing.
1: What the irony is, is that like true connection comes from vulnerability and really yep. showing yourself. And alcohol is a mask. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's pseudo intimacy.
0: I'm interested to talk a little bit about social media, kind of this pressure we feel to to always be happy. And I think a lot of you know our current state of mind in our society, you know, for whatever reasons, leadership and you know all the insecurities we feel. It's combated specifically on social media with all these like, you know, do what you love, love what you do, you know, just just be, you know, set your priorities and be happy. And it's like all this like easy little, you know, phrases that are that are almost mantra like to, to just be live, happy. laugh, love, you know, just live, laugh, love. It's so easy. <laughs> and it's just this pressure to be happy all the time. And it's just not realistic. And then because it's not realistic, we beat ourselves up over not being able to do it because it's so in your face to be happy all the time. You just have to do this, 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 then this, and this, and this. I don't know. I just, that's such an interesting thing to me just because it is a lot of why we drink because the drinking makes you happy very quickly and you can start to feel those things that are that are being said to you and pushed on you all the time.
1: I agree. I mean, I think... I think social media, there's benefits to it, but it also can be very toxic. And I think that that is also part of this perfect storm that women are experiencing. It's like you look all around and you see all these images of perfect moms and beautiful, perfect thin moms. And, you know, perfection 24-7 and friends and amazing trips. Travel, yeah. And you feel like there's something wrong with you that you don't have Mm -hmm. all those things you know yeah and i think we also know i mean it's it's hard to compare you know studies on kids to adults but we know that social media is super toxic for teen girls you know we also know that um you know smartphone use became sort of ever present around 2010 that sort of coincides with some of these other stats, like the rise in women's mm, drinking, yeah, you know so it's not it's not one thing that's causing women to drink more it's just it's like it's a perfect storm of different factors. I have a friend that has a like a kid's a baby store in the south, and she told me that she is having trouble fulfilling orders for her store, like reaching the you know minimum order because so much of the merchandise has all this wine mom stuff, you know, on the baby onesies, on the toys, Mm -hmm. on all that. And she said it's been really difficult to find and meet the minimum orders from these brands um, because she doesn't want to carry that kind of merchandise. Um, And then some other examples are, so we had, you know, Trader Joe's last year was marketing in some locations wine as a back-to-school supply. We had Tropicana. Tropicana, They had an advertising campaign that dropped on Instagram around the holidays last year where Molly Sims is sneaking into a closet with a minibar disguised as a hamper to drink a mimosa. And she says, you know, this makes me a better mom, the best mom. And (laughs) I mean, it was it it was just out of control. Outrageous. Yeah. You know, then a friend of mine recently got a puppy and she went into the dog store and there was like a dog toy that said Rosé all day. You know, it's just it's everywhere
0: it's everywhere we do this every episode we like to ask our guests for kind of a bullet point answer if doable the first one which is how would you recommend to mothers out there who've gotten into maybe a bit of a hole with their drinking or or however we want to describe it as, as as sensitively as possible how would you advise them to start the process of exploring their relationship with alcohol Aside from our podcast.
1: A great first step for exploring your relationship with alcohol is experimenting with a period of abstinence. You know, do a 30-day dry month or three months. I think the longer the better, but whatever you can manage because then I think you're and, – and keep track of how you feel physically, mentally – Because I think that can be very eye-opening. And I think that helps people realize like, oh, you know, alcohol is taking a much bigger toll on my mental and physical well-being than I realized. I really like Laura McCowan. I love her work. Mm. I love her insights. I like her new podcast, Tell Me Something True. I think the luckiest club, um, I don't participate in the meetings, but I like these new groups that have popped up that are not AA because I think... AA can alienate people. And I, and I like that, you know, like Holly Whitaker's group and Laura's group and Annie Grace, like they offer a forum for exploring your relationship with alcohol without someone having to say like, my life is unmanageable, you know? And I think that is a good thing, even though AA works for a lot of people. And then this is something that helped me in my kind of early years of quitting drinking is I set big goals you know, I ran a marathon, I climbed the Matterhorn, I, you know, I set, I made a goal of publishing in a national publication, and you can have smaller goals, but like setting a I goal that. so that you can have something else to focus on and maybe bring you into a new community mm-hmm. was just really powerful for me, and it also just showed me what I was capable of, like, and that I had an identity outside of being a fun party girl, and it, it, it brought yeah. me more into my truth
0: great answer.
3: What are the three biggest positives from living as an alcohol-free mother?
1: I want to be really careful not to shame moms that do drink because yeah. yes. it can work yeah, yeah, yeah. for moms. It's a lot of It can work for a lot of people. But for me, what I like about being an alcohol-free mom, and particularly in comparison to drinking, is I am so proud of the fact that I am modeling to my daughter's how to live without booze and like what I want them to know more than anything is I want them to know that they don't need anything outside of themselves to be fun, to be likable, to connect with other women, to feel sexy. Like they don't need anything. They have it all within them. And if they can go out into the world and just have this inner confidence that they can show up anywhere without anything, without any crutch, like I will be so proud and know that I have done something right.
3: Beautiful.
0: Kelly, thank you so, so, so much. Yeah, thank you, We guys. really appreciate you coming on. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call one 800 662 4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit DilworthCenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit the Blanchard Institute.com or call 704-288-1097.